Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig deep into the list of instructions of Scripture to discern the heart that is beneath them and behind them. This week we begin a process. Uh, this process is one that's been engaged in for millennia by millions, if not billions, of people throughout history. It is a process that can result in falling over the stone of stumbling that we discussed last week. The stone presents itself in two ways. The stone that turns this godly instruction into a tyrannical imposition on all others, according to our own understanding, on one side. This side will have us condemning others who do not agree with our personal interpretation. It will force division among brothers along increasingly more restrictive lines of interpretation. This is the outlook of the Pharisees of the first century. No one who is outside of the narrow confines of interpretation was to be part of their community. The Essenes were even more restrictive in this regard. It is this idea that Paul addresses in the opening chapters of Galatians, and this is the core ideal that was under discussion in the Jerusalem Council that we read of in Acts 15. What are the lines of division? Where do they lie? At what point do we separate from a brother? And the Jerusalem Council created a list of four rules that are to be the dividing line of those who are part of the community and those who are outside. On the other side of the stone of stumbling is the thought of turning this godly instruction into nothing more than just simple wisdom principles, a non-binding guide for how to gain and operate in wisdom. This is what much of the modern church has chosen to do with God's instruction, and this way has led to acceptance of all sorts of things that are called abomination in Scripture. The ideals of forgiveness, love, and grace have been placed on a pedestal over all others and are no longer tempered by holiness, righteousness, and order. This way has even allowed an overturning of the principles of Acts 15. Now, as we enter into this process, we must be sure that we don't run off the path to one side or the other. And yet, despite this danger, this process is one that can be one of the most enriching and fulfilling processes that we can enter into. The process of attempting to understand and to discern the Torah of Hashem. The instructions for humans on how to live this thing called life. And not just any humans. His 
humans. The humans that have been called into covenant and relationship with him. For what is it that we're reading now? First of all, we're reading the book of Exodus. And as we've covered since the beginning of this book, Exodus is more than just simply a story of escape. It's a revelation of Hashem. The Hebrew name of this book is Names, and that is what we discover is the name of God. Not simply the moniker that identifies Hashem from other gods, but much more than that. The name of God includes his character, his reputation, his authority, his power, and so much more. And that is what this book reveals, and that is what we are attempting to learn about God from this book. Alongside that, the specific text that we are in this week is in the context of marriage. This text is what would be called a ketuvah in modern-day language, a contract of marriage covenant. But this contract is not a contract that's been made between a human husband and a human wife. It's a contract that's been made between the God of all creation and a people whom he has called to himself. The terms of this covenant are not binding on anyone else. Just as my marriage contract with my wife is not binding on anyone outside of my marriage, so too this contract is not binding on those outside of the community of Israel. This is the special contract that's between God and his people, his special covenant with them. Now, in a human relationship, this contract would be between one person and one person. But in the case of the God of Israel, this contract is between him and an entire people group. And so this week, as we begin to discuss the first instructions contained in this marriage contract, we will discover that this is the thrust of the entirety of what we're going to read today. How do we act when we're in community? How do we treat each other? How are we, who are to be the bride of the Most High God, how are we to behave in the course of our relationships with each other? And as we examine this text today, we will discover that the very first thing, the things closest to the heart of God, is community. For without community, we cannot be a bride for Hashem. The status of bride is not one that is individual. It is a status that is communal. So let's read this week's Parsha and discover what it can teach us about our relationship. Not just to our God, but just as importantly, to each other. Exodus 21 and 22. These are the right rulings which you are to set before them. When you buy a Hebrew servant, he serves six years, and in the seventh he goes out free, for naught. If he comes in by himself, he goes out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children are her masters, and he goes out by himself. And if the servant truly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, let me not go out free. Then his master shall bring him before Elohim, and shall bring him to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And when a man sells his daughter to be a female servant, she does not go out as the male servants do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who has engaged her to himself, then he shall let her be ransomed. He shall have no authority to sell her to a foreign people because of him deceiving her. And if he has engaged her to his son, he is to do to her as is the right of daughters. If he takes another wife, her food, her covering, and her marriage rights are not to be diminished. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out for naught, without silver. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall certainly be put to death. 
But if he did not lie in wait, but Elohim delivered him into his hand, then I shall appoint for you a place where he is to flee. But when a man acts presumptuously against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you are to take him even from my altar to die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall certainly be put to death. And he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall certainly be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall certainly be put to death. And when men strive together and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be innocent. He only pays for lost time and sees to it that he is completely healed. And when a man strikes his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall certainly be punished. But if he remains alive a day or two, he is not punished, for he is his property. And when men strive, and they shall smite a pregnant woman, and her children come out, yet there is no injury, he shall certainly be punished accordingly as the woman's husband lays upon him, and he shall give through the judges. But if there is injury, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, lash for lash. And when a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he is to let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he is to let him go free for the sake of his tooth. And when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall certainly be stoned and its flesh is not eaten, and the owner of the ox is innocent. However, if the ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned that he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox is stoned, and its owner also is put to death. If a sin covering is laid upon him, then he shall give the ransom for his life, whatever is laid on him. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this right ruling, it is done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he is to give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox is stoned. And when a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit is to repay. He is to give silver to the owner, and the dead beast is his. And when the ox of a man smites the ox of his neighbor, and it dies, then they shall sell the live ox, and divide the silver from it, and also divide the dead ox. Or if it was known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner had not kept it confined, he shall certainly repay ox for ox, while the dead beast is his. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and shall slaughter it or sell it, he repays five cattle for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there is no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there is guilt for his bloodshed. He shall certainly repay. If he has not the means, then he shall be sold for his theft. And if the theft is indeed found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or sheep, he repays double. When a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare, he lets loose his livestock, and it feeds on another man's field, he repays from the beasts of his own field and the beast of his own vineyard. When fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes, so that stacked grain or standing grain or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall certainly repay. When a man gives silver or goods to his neighbor to guard, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he repays double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought before Elohim to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For every matter of transgression, for ox or donkey, for sheep, for garment, or for whatever is lost, which another claims to be his, let the matter of them both come before Elohim, and whomever Elohim declares wrong, repays double to his neighbor. 
when the man gives to his neighbor a donkey or ox or sheep or any beast to watch over, and it dies or is injured or is driven away while no one is looking. Let an oath of Hashem be between them both, that he has not put his hand to his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he does not repay. But if it is indeed stolen from him, he repays it to its owner. If it is torn to pieces, then let him bring it for evidence, he does not repay what was torn. And when a man borrows from his neighbor, and it is injured or dies while the owner of it is not present, he shall certainly repay. But if its owner was with it, he does not repay. If it was hired, he is entitled to the hire. And when a man entices a maiden who is not engaged and lies with her, he shall certainly pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he pays according to the bride price for maidens. Do not allow a practicer of witchcraft to live. Anyone lying with a beast shall certainly be put to death. He who slaughters to an Elohim except to Hashem only is put under the ban. Do not tread down a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Mitzrayim. Do not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you do afflict them at all, if they cry out to me at all, I shall certainly hear their cry. And my wrath shall burn, and I shall kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you do lend silver to any of my people, the poor among you, you are not to be like one that lends on interest to him. Do not lay interest on him. If you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge at all, you are to return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What does he sleep in? And it shall be that when he cries out to me, I shall hear, for I show favor. Do not revile an Elohim nor curse a ruler of your people. Do not delay giving your harvest and your vintage. Give me the firstborn of your sons. Likewise, you are to do with your oxen and your sheep. It is to be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you give it to me. And you are holy men to me, and you do not eat any meat which is torn to pieces in the field. You throw it to the dogs. And one of the main criticisms that the Bible receives from modern audiences is the accusation that a book that was inspired by God would never make allowances for an institution as demeaning and debasing and even immoral as slavery. All too often, we as modern audiences, we look at the practice of slavery as it was practiced in the United States for hundreds of years, and we equate it to what the Bible is speaking of. And since slavery as practiced in America was a great evil, then the Bible itself cannot be true because in this view, the Bible makes allowances for this practice. But to impose this idea upon the text is anachronistic. An anachronism is when you take something from the present and impose it upon the past. It's like saying that in scripture when it says that they were all in one accord, taking that to understand that they were all riding together in a Honda vehicle. That's anachronistic. Was the slavery of Egypt evil? Yes. Now, did God simply forget about this evil when two months later he then gives these instructions to his new bride of Israel? I mean, this is what is being said when this stance is taken. God simply forgot the evils of slavery as practiced in Egypt, and so now he's making allowances for the travesty to occur in Israel, and so too in any other community in the world. So let me ask you a question. Does God approve of divorce? No. Was divorce the highest ideal of God? No. In an ideal world, divorce would be unheard of. In an ideal world, breaking contracts, breaking covenant wouldn't exist. We don't live in an ideal world. So why were instructions given regarding divorce? 
Matthew 19.8 says, He said to them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moshe allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I would contend that this is the same view that we should take towards the human institution of slavery. An allowance is made in the Torah as given to Moses for slavery to exist. Not because it is righteous and just in the ultimate ideal, but rather because of the hardness of men's hearts and the corruption of our world. It was not intended that life should work this way in the beginning. But men, being what we are, a standard must be set on how to live within these personal tragedies that will occur from time to time and place to place. We in the West do not have quite the same problem with slavery today as they did in the ancient world. But that's not to say that slavery does not exist. It exists in several forms, even here in the U.S., Human trafficking is one way that slavery exists. The stealing of people to be used for personal gain. Illegal immigration is another area where this happens. When a person enters this country illegally, they do not have the protection of law. And so those who exploit the structure of the law in the first place to get others here will then enslave those who are now completely vulnerable and dependent. Or what about our prison systems? We like to think that slavery was abolished in the U.S. with the 13th Amendment, but it was not. A provision was kept in the Constitution to allow for prisoners to be used as unpaid compulsive labor. Slavery in these forms and more still exists even in America. Why? Because of the hardness of the hearts of men. And so God recognizes this in his covenant partners and he makes an allowance in his instruction. Not to do with the institution completely, but to make the practice as just and as equitable as possible. And so as the ketuvah of God as given to Moses opens, the very first thing that is addressed is not an allowance for slaves, but rather it is the rights of the slave. This idea, slaves' rights, was unheard of in the ancient world. Slaves have rights? No, slaves are property, and property has no rights. But Hashem says differently. And the rights of slaves actually began in the last chapter. When we read the fourth command as recorded here in Exodus, we discovered that the command for Sabbath is to extend to everyone in Israel, regardless of their station or their circumstance. The fourth command states unequivocally that slaves are indeed humans and have the same level of status and dignity in the eyes of God as everyone else in the community. They too get a Sabbath. And so as this chapter opens, we see the idea of a Sabbath for the slave addressed once again. In the fourth command, a slave was to be given a Sabbath every week. But here we discover that a slave is to be given a Sabbath in the yearly cycle as well. In fact, a Hebrew slave is not to be kept as a slave beyond a seven-year time frame. If life circumstances put them in a place where they are enslaved, this is not to be the end of their life and their lot eternal. They are to be elevated out of this place and given a fresh start once again. Now, immediately we read commands that give refreshing to the weary and the downtrodden. The lowest station possible for a Hebrew is a place where the dignity of being a human who was created in the image of God is not revoked. Now, some of the commands here regarding the wives and children of the slaves can be hard to stomach for modern people. But remember, the Torah is not the ideal standard of life. 
It's the best standard of life possible in a world that suffers the corruption of sin and death. And if we consider these commands in their context, there is mercy in these commands. If a slave was married before he became a slave, the family is not to be broken up. But if the master arranged the marriage while the slave was in the master's employ, the woman was still the master's property. She is on her own timeline in her own situation, and she is still the master's property. And in this situation, the slave is given a choice here. Imagine that. A slave with a choice. On one side, the choice is freedom. This could be freedom from the house of a cruel master, freedom from a marriage that's not workable, or simply freedom for the sake of freedom. Alternatively, though, if the master has been good and the slave thinks that their life will be better off to remain in slavery, if the slave truly loves the woman that the master has given him to marry, then the slave can make the choice to stay. Now, could this command be misused by an unscrupulous master to entrap a slave? Sure, it could be. But at least the slave has a choice. Before this was written, even that was unthinkable. And if the master is also following the spirit of the Torah, he's not going to use it to try to entrap the slave. Nothing about the situation is ideal, but the Torah reveals the way of justice in a world in which the ideal is impossible. And it reveals the truth that God cares about even the slaves, even the lowest are human and deserve the inherent respect and honor due to a human who is in the image of God. Now, if there's an area in scripture that's attacked as much as the slavery issue in the Bible, women's rights is a close second, if not first. And that's what the next set of commands that we enter into, that's what we encounter. A woman does not go out in the same way that a man goes out. You see, women are lesser than men in the eyes of the Bible. It says so right here. But the fact of the matter is that women were seen as lesser in the eyes of the ancient world at large. Women had no rights. And so scripture here gives women rights. Again, this was unheard of in the ancient world. Women, too, were property to be traded for the purpose of children and chores. And the Bible here gives women rights within their household. You see, a woman didn't enter into a slavery contract for no reason at all. The purpose of buying a woman as a slave was for the purpose of either marriage, concubinage, or an unmarried status of a laborer within the home. And the woman knew this when she entered into the status of slave. The only difference between these things was status in the family and a ketuvah, the contract of protection. So in buying a woman slave, the master gained something. A wife for himself, a wife for his son, or a favored servant or slave. And both the woman and her family gained. The family through the money that would be paid for the woman. And the woman gained the security of the household that purchased her, a security that she needed in the ancient world. You see, in the ancient world, in all societies, an unmarried woman had two choices, remain in her father's house until the day that she died, or hit the streets and use the only assets that she has to make a living in society in which she had no opportunities. And it's into this that the Torah was given. 
a woman when brought into a house for the purpose of marriage or concubinage, when she was betrothed or taken to her master, she was no longer considered a slave. If she is a wife or concubine, she is treated as a wife or a concubine according to her station. Her slavery ends the moment that she's given in marriage or taken as concubine. From then on, it's the duty of the husband or the master to provide for her. It's his duty to offer her security. And that's what we find recorded here. A woman who is a wife, whether loved or unloved, whether first or last, has certain rights. And those rights are food, clothing, and ona. Now that last one is a little bit tricky because this is the one and only time in scripture that that word is used. The word ona is thought to have been derived from an Akkadian word which bears the meaning of cohabitation. And so if we consider cohabitation, then the concept of both shelter and conjugal intimacy are covered in this word from that perspective. You see a woman who's married who doesn't have a child, that's a woman without purpose in the ancient mind. And so the conjugal intimacy was something that the woman needed in order to have children. And the more children she had, the more secure she was. And if for some reason any of these conditions are not met, then the woman is to be set free. If she was never married or used as a concubine, then she can be sold, but only to a Hebrew. If she was married or a concubine, and the master fails to live up to his duty in any of those three areas, he is to let her go for free. Now, most translations say that she is to go without silver. And this may seem harsh, but the price of a dowry was paid to her former master, whether her father or another slave owner. And at the same time, if the master has taken her to be his own, she's not to be sold because she is no longer property to anyone. No money changes hands at her release. And in this way, a woman slave is not to be set free in the same way that a male slave was set free. And what happens when a woman is let go in this way? She's now considered a widow. And this is a status that we'll learn about very shortly. The principle underlying this, though, is that women have value. Women have rights. And men, it's our duty as husbands and men to fulfill these rights as they concern our wives. Beginning of verse 12, we enter into a discussion on capital crimes. One of the things we notice at first is that the intent of a person when killing is to be considered. If a man kills another without intent, he is to have a place to flee to, which we're going to cover much later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in greater detail. But a premeditated murder is to be dealt with severely, regardless of where the perpetrator is found. Here, too, we discover that the act of disrespecting your father and your mother is indeed a capital offense. Now, whether this is done through an act of striking or an act of cursing doesn't matter. This is a very serious offense toward not just your human creator, but as we spoke of last week, your heavenly creator as well. Now, I want to point out that we cannot carry out capital punishment in our society, but we can, as a community, as a people of God, do the next best thing of exiling those who blatantly engage in behavior that falls under this category in the Torah. And it's here that can allow us to apply the Torah as more than just simply wisdom literature. Those who unrepentantly continue to engage in crimes that are considered capital, according to Torah, are to be removed from the community. 
Now, squished between these two commands regarding respect for parents, we read that if a person is kidnapped, the kidnapper is to die. And it's this verse here that gives proof to the lie that slavery in the Bible is equal to slavery in America. Slavery was something that a person entered into willingly in the Hebrew community. Now, a child could be sold into slavery, but only by a willing parent. That's unescapable. Honor demands that this decision be respected because they are to respect their parents. But an adult who entered into slavery did so of their own free will. No one was to be kidnapped or forced into slavery, not within the Hebrew community. There is an exception for that, which we will find in the very next chapter when we get to theft. Now, beginning in verse 18, the topic shifts from capital offense to non-capital assault. One thread that we discover is that there is to be justice for the victim in every case. Even if the victim is a slave, we discover in verses 20 through 21. Even if the victim is a woman or her unborn child, we discover in verse 22. In the case of assault and injury, justice is to be done. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, this idea, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, this ideal was mistreated by Judaism, and they took it to mean that vengeance was permissible in the slightest of offenses. And so, in Matthew 5, Yeshua addresses this idea, and the way that he handles it is thought by many to be overturning the command that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth no longer applies. But that's simply not the case. You see, the thought of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was extrapolated in such a way that it was taken out of the context of assault and injury and carried over into the realm of shame. So what is Yeshua saying when he makes this statement in Matthew 5, verse 38 through 41? You heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the wicked. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And he who wishes to sue you and take away your inner garment, let him have your outer garment as well. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This is not an appeal to never have justice, to just bend over and take whatever assault is directed your way. You see, Yeshua was very purposeful in his language here. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, are they attacking you? No. In the ancient Near East, it was a great shame to be smacked by someone's left hand, which would land on the right cheek. Why was that? The left hand was the hand that was used when using the bathroom. It was a hand of shame. It was gross. It was untouchable. And so to use your left hand when striking a person was not a physical attack, but rather a shaming attack. And what about the garments? I mean, that's obviously a shaming as the claimant wants the inner garment, but not the outer. He's seeking only to use the justice system to bring shame upon another. Yeshua was not overturning the Torah in this statement, but rather he was returning it to the place where it should have always been. Eye for an eye is a principle of how to deal with cases of assault and was to be applied from the perspective of the judges. And that's all. Nothing more. To take the statement out of that context and apply it to just any situation is to stumble over a block of stumbling. It's to use what I call soundbite theology, and doing that is very dangerous. Now, so far, the topics of slaves and women rights have been addressed, and the topics of death and injury at the hands of men 
In verse 28, the topic shifts to the death at the hands of the property of another person. Once again here, the intent is important in this case, and there is a deepening of this principle here. You see, if an ox kills a man, the ox is held responsible for that crime, not the owner, unless the owner knew that the ox was violent and had not dealt with it himself. If this is the case, then the owner has demonstrated that the labor that he could get from the ox was greater value than the life and safety of his neighbors. In this case, even though there was no intent by the oxen's owner to harm another, there was not the intent to protect his brother. And that's the same thing as wishing him dead. And so from this we learn that we have to be very careful with our property. If our property leads to death or injury of another in a way that we could have addressed but we didn't, then the fault's our own. In verse 33, then it shifts slightly to the topic of the loss of property due to an accident. No one died, but you still lost property. There's still a process to be carried out in this case. If my property injures your property, it's my duty to make it up to you. Now, these commands go far beyond oxens and pits, and then they encompass principles of justice. But just as in the case of eye for an eye, we cannot soundbite the principle of Torah and then force its application in all areas of life. You see how this works? The case law, for lack of better terms, this way of describing a situation is meant to act as a pointer to ideals of great importance. If my car has bad brakes and I hit your car because of it, it's my duty to make it right. I cannot claim that just because I, it was not an oxen that this principle doesn't apply. To borrow a soundbite from Paul, is it oxen that God is concerned about or does he say these things for the benefit of us all, whether we own oxen or not? You see, there is this tendency to only take the Torah at its base meaning and not allow applications that are not specifically spoken of. We must avoid that thought process because that is the first stone of stumbling that I spoke of earlier. The legalistic, tyrannical application that not a single biblical author lived by. Now, beginning in chapter 22, the topic shifts once again. The last thing that was discussed was the loss of property due to accident or oversight. Now the text enters into the discussion of loss of property due to theft. And in this case, the punishment is much greater than it was previously described. Now in the case of theft, there is no capital punishment described, with one exception. The thief that is caught in the act while at night. In this case, it is well within the rights of the property owner to kill the thief. Why? Well, because it's dark. The owner has no idea what the thief is doing there, if he's armed or how far he's willing to go. If this is the case, the thief is to be put down. But if the theft is occurring in the day, a decision can be made. Is my life in danger? If the man is simply a thief, he isn't to be detained. If the man is armed, however, he's no longer simply a thief. The understated application being to act accordingly when it comes to protecting life from those who would seek to take it. Otherwise, the punishment for a thief is a policy that I call restitution plus. You see, there's no allowance in the Torah for taking a criminal and locking them up for years and forcing society to support them so that they can learn some sort of lesson by being in a cage. This is something that we can cover in greater detail at another point, but I want to make the point now. Nowhere in the Torah is a criminal to be locked up and cared for by the victims. It is either a capital crime, which results in death at worst or exile at best, 
or it's a non-capital crime which calls for restitution and repayment of some sort. If the thief is unable to repay the loss, then the process of enslavement comes into play. And this is the one time that a person can be sold into slavery in order to pay off a debt. This is the just principle of the Torah, not prison as we practice it in the West. There is no greater offense to the human spirit than to be locked in a cage. Now in verse 10, the topic switches once again from loss of property through theft to loss of property through the death or damage of the property. Now these are principles that I hope to never have to enact myself, but we do have to know them so that we can know what our own responsibility is if we ever face these situations. In verse 16 through 17, we read of a type of theft that is unique from the others. You see in the ancient Near East, daughters, they were an investment. As crude as that sounds, it's truth. A woman's purpose was to leave the family for good and forever. It was the family's duty to raise her to be desirable for someone else to marry. Daughters were viciously protected and highly valued. And so when a man takes a maiden who is outside of any kind of covenant, the family investment was ruined. And in this case, the man is required to pay for her. Whether the father gives her to him or not, the man pays for her as if he's married her. You see, if this man is not good, the father can nullify the relationship. But at the same time, his daughter is now defiled and undesirable to any other man of honor. It's the man's position to repay the father for this theft of the girl's future. Verses 18 through 20 then discuss capital offenses in relationships to Adonai. Previously, we saw that dishonor of one's parents was a capital offense. Here we get the exact same thing. This time, rather than in relationships to parents, we see this described in relationship to God himself. Witchcraft of any sort, and we'll get into a much fuller list later in Deuteronomy. Bestiality, sacrifice to other gods, they are all just as serious of offenses as striking your father or cursing your parents. Once again, exile from the community is the only application available to us today in these situations. In verse 21, we see yet another transition. We saw relationships discussed earlier in the rights that were prescribed to slaves and women. Now we see the topic of relationships approached. Now, not from people who are directly connected to you, but rather through those who are the least among us. The poor, the widow, the orphan. Are they owed rights as they're presented earlier? No, not in the same way. But they're not to be avoided or afflicted. They too are special to God, and he will hear their cries if they cry out to him on behalf of some tragedy that's been perpetrated on them. And later we will discover that we are to make an effort to provide for those who are in these situations. And then finally we see the discussion shift even more. And relationships to those in your circle have been addressed. Relationships to those who are vulnerable in your society have been addressed. Now the text turns towards, for just four verses, Relationship with Hashem. Do not rebel against God-placed authority. Whether that is to make light of God himself or any authority that he has set over you. Do not delay to pay your tribute to God, your first fruits. 
Do not delay for the sake of a Sabbath cycle to give your firstborn through the process of redemption and circumcision of your animals or your sons to God. They are to have a Sabbath cycle of time to be in this world before being given to God. Now, we must remember that at this time, it was the firstborn who were the priests of Israel. This status isn't going to change for some chapters still. It's going to be quite some time before we get there. And so we have to keep this in mind at this point. And then finally, it says, don't eat something that has the stench of death on it. Something that was destroyed in the field. If you did not have its blood drained and it was food for unclean animals, don't eat it. You're better than that. You're not animals that you should eat as they do. And so as we reach the end of this Parsha, it's incumbent upon us to look back over all of these decrees that we read here. We must remember that this is the ketuvah of a wedding with God. This is his contract of marriage to his people. And as such, these situational instructions reveal to us the heart of God towards his people. And what is it? What thread do we find woven through all of these commands from one end to the other? Each of these commands is dealing with community interactions of the people of Israel. And what is the heart of these commands and the interactions that are described here? Justice, love, and peace. The elevation of the vulnerable, those who have no one to protect them. The slave, the one who without protection would be expected to work all of the time. The weary who would never get a rest. Women, especially women from poor families in a time when women were valuable as property and really not a whole lot more. The orphan, the one with no father to provide or protect him from the evils of the world. The widow, the woman who's lost her protection from her husband, who has lost her provision. The woman who is now facing the world alone. And victims, victims of theft, victims of assault. This Torah demonstrates that all people have value in God's eyes. All who are in the community of Israel are to be treated as human. There is none who is treated any less. And this is the heart of the God that we serve. And this is the clear example of what we read last week, Isaiah 28, 11-13. For with a jabbering lip and a foreign tongue, he speaks to this people to whom he said, This is the rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is the refreshing. But they would not hear. But the word of Hashem was to them, command upon command, command upon command, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, so that they shall stumble backwards and be broken and snared and taken captive. This is how the people of God have treated his Torah, as if it were simply command upon command and line upon line. And this view is equated to hearing the Torah as if it were spoken in a foreign tongue. But the message here is clear. He has said, this is the rest, give rest to the weary, and this is the refreshing This is his heart, and this is the heart of the Torah. This is his love for us, and this is how we begin to love each other. We identify those who are hurting. We identify those who are weary. We identify those who have been victims. 
and we do our best to give rest, peace, comfort, and justice. And it is this that is the narrow way, the way of loving your neighbor and the way of peace. And this is the beginning of the way to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. The way of Deresh Chai, the way of seeking life in all that we do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.